Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Perch Pod. As usual, I'm your host. I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm also the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a human-centric business and political consulting firm. Joining me on the podcast today is a, re- is a repeat guest, uh, my good friend, Dr. Kamran Bokhari, who is the director of analytical development at the New Lines Institute, uh, was kind enough to make, to make some time to come on the podcast. Uh, we talked about three main issues. We talked about um, Iran's recent presidential elections. We talked about some of the a very, very high-level geopolitical background of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Shout out to the Nugs. They know who they are for requesting that topic. I am at your service. And then last but not least, we talked about Pakistan uh, and Imran Khan's really shocking interview um, with Axios, with HBO's Jonathan Swan. Um, Khan gave some pretty shocking answers, at least for me about uh, what China is doing right now in Xinjiang to its ethnic Uyghur Muslim population. And there wasn't a better person than Kamran to talk to and ask questions about it. Uh, Before we dive into the episode, first of all, keep in mind we recorded this on Friday, June 25th. This will come out about two weeks from now. I'm not expecting anything crazy to happen between now and then, but you never know. And on that note, let's dive right in with Kamran. Thanks, guys. It's always good to be uh, connected to you all. Cheers. See you out there. Kamran Bokhari, you are back on the podcast. It's really good to, to see you and have you here, my friend. I am honored to be back, and it's always wonderful to get a chance to, you know, exchange thoughts, argue, debate, discuss. It's just a joy. <laughs> well, the honor is always mine. Uh, maybe one of these days we'll get to do it in person now that the pandemic is mercifully, at least in some parts of the world, starting to, to die down a little. Um, We've got three things on our agenda this week, and let's start with uh, the recent presidential, I don't even, should we call them elections in Iran? Uh, I don't know if you can call something that had a preordained result an election. I saw you go on- I I call it a selection. You call, okay, well, there you go. I saw you go on, um, I forget which TV channel it was, but you did a great interview on a TV channel and said, if Raisi, who is the new president-elect, is the best that the Islamic Republic has to offer, then Iran is in a lot more trouble than you thought. Um, so let me just let's just open it up with uh, how do you want to start? If if you're advising listeners to understand what happened in the Iranian election and how it might change Iran's role in the region, Iran-U.S. relations, where would you begin? So I want to borrow from a phrase that was very controversial in the. Um, in the late 19th century and, and, and the early 20th century. Uh, and this was about, uh, this was a reference to the Ottoman Empire as the sick man of Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that uh, Iran's regime is sick in that sense that it's, uh, it's past its peak. I've written about this. I don't know if you remember those pieces. Iran's, the Islamic Republic's political system uh, no longer enjoys the kind of support that it used to. Uh, and there are a lot of reasons for it. So number one is that there are a lot of people who are now you know, a sizable amount of the population who don't remember that there was a revolution against the Shah. <laughs> and so all they see, you know, they came to being in an age where the thing was that, uh, you know, social media, if you will. They came of age and they look at the world from a very different lens. So their commitment to the ideals of the revolution or even what the revolution was aren't just aren't there. So yes, they're force-fed 
this narrative through the educational curricula, society, a top-down indoctrination. But look, you know, we're talking human beings and you can't brainwash them. Yes, there is a certain level of intellectual ideological conditioning that does take place. But at the end of the day, this isn't the 70s or the 80s or even the 90s. Uh, people have access to all sorts of information. They just can't buy uh, you know, official narratives. And quite frankly, official narratives aren't working. Uh, and, and so that's number one. Number two is that the, the generation that founded the Islamic Republic uh, is basically, uh, you know, it, it has died off. You know, Khamenei and Rouhani probably represent the most illustrious of that generation that's still around. <laughs> we have had a lot of those, you know, top tier clerics who used to be um, if you will, uh, you know, prominent, they led prominent institutions, they're all gone, uh, including, you know, uh, uh, Hashmi Rafsanjani, who used to be, uh, you know, quite influential, powerful, probably the second most powerful cleric after Khamenei. Um, and, you know, by the time he died a few years ago, his best days were behind him as well. So, that euphoria is not there. The people are not there. The regime hasn't evolved. And on top of that, it's stagnated uh, from a political economic point of view. At one point, we used to think, uh, I was of this view as well. I mean, this is the late 90s when President Khatami uh, took over uh, and you know he was a reformist uh, looking leader, a reformist from within the perspective of the regime. He, he's not like, a when we say reformist, we shouldn't confuse them as being from a Western perspective. Reformists, with respect to uh, consider them the, the the left wing of the you know the Islamic Republic, right. and so there was a lot of euphoria that oh you know maybe this regime is now that's been hybrid and a weird mix of Western parliamentary republicanism and Shiite theocracy, Islamist theocracy, uh, is somehow moving into uh, you know more of a democratic leaning. Uh, where you know that regime or the pendulum is swinging towards people who are elected and popular support and rule of law and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, there was good reason to believe that because it wasn't just Khatami. Parliament for a long time was dominated by reformists mm. right around that time, but we saw you know right around uh, you know let's say the early years after 9/11 where uh, you have this situation where the uh, the clerics really were scared of what they saw. Their power was eroding. So they engaged in a lot of engineering of the political system through various institutions and really isolated the 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 left and then brought back, you know, the right. Uh, and the right has many factions, but this was, you know, they wanted right wing elements in all state institutions. So when you do that, then this, you know, you, you stop sort of the natural evolution of any regime. Hmm. Uh, and so this regime is now at a point where, you know, Raisi is an operative. He's not a politician in the sense of like even Ahmadinejad. Ahmadinejad at least could say, hey, I had a support base. People elected me mayor of Tehran. 
a lot of people don't like me, but I still have a support base. He wasn't a cleric in uh, at all. He was a, a civilian from that respect. Uh, and, uh, you know, he also held political office in, gov in various governorates around the country. This guy isn't that. He's also not a cleric. There is no evidence that he ever f completed his clerical studies. In fact, there are some reports suggest that uh, he was sort of, uh, you know, he faced opposition when he started to use the title of Ayatollah uh, a few years ago, and he was forced to sort of backtrack. And now he refers to himself or is recognized as Hujat al-Islam, which is like below Ayatollah, but still, you know, has a title. But he's not a cleric. He can't, he, you know, he, he doesn't have the, he never completed seminary studies. So he's an operative and particularly, a, you know, in the, uh, as a prosecutor who basically send people to torture chambers and to their deaths uh, as part of the judiciary of that country. So if that's what you have in 2021 as your president, uh, then, you know, it's not hard to tell that this regime does not have any vitality left in it. And we're at a point where Khamenei himself is about to pass the baton to a successor because, you know, He's advanced age and his health isn't great. They try to sort of mask that and say, no, no, he's okay. He'll be around. But here we are. Well, before we turn to sort of what's going to happen next, um, you did a really good job diagramming sort of what the internal politics of Iran look like and how they're deteriorating. But zero in just on the IRGC and where they fit in on that spectrum. Are they in those right factors? factions you alluded to? Are they a separate thing entirely? And they're one of the ones that are going to try and take advantage of the deterioration. Where do you put them on the Iranian political spectrum? That's a great question. And, and you know, um, so I wrote a piece called Evolutionary Regime Change uh, in Iran. And this was about three years ago. And at the time, I was thinking or my thinking was that um, there are three power centers. There are those who are the elected people, you know, the political class, if you will. Uh, they could be clerics, they could be IRGC, but there is a political class that sort of gets power, not because they're IRGC or clerics, it's because they get elected. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there is the clergy that's sort of like dominating and sitting on top of this edifice and controlling every uh, institution of worth, including security forces. Uh, so note that the both the civilian intelligence agency, Moise, and the Ministry of Intelligence and Security, is uh, led by a cleric. <laughs> and even IRGC intelligence, the other uh, main intelligence agency of the country, uh, uh, is led by a cleric. But then there is the IRGC. So the IRGC uh, is a military force. You know, it is, it's not... People call it paramilitary. I think that's that's not correct because it is uh, a military force in the very sense of the word because it has all three services uh, and, you know, everything about it says that it is a military force. But the problem is Iran already has another military force, which is the Arpesh, which is the regular armed forces. Uh, and this IRGC was initially started as defenders of the revolution. And initially it was seen as, uh, you know, both domestic and external. And at some point it emerged because of the Iraq war, the war with Iraq in the 80s, the eight year war, this machine 
had a chance to grow into an actual, I saw combat, uh, you know, actual battle, uh, lots of people died. There was a lot of learning done and it evolved into a, a what you would call, you know, a professional military force. But it has a, a second problem, which makes it weird, is that it's heavily ideological. Mm-hmm. So the regular armed forces, you, not to say that they're not ideological, you couldn't be non-ideological uh, if you report to Khamenei. But that's the qualitative difference between the Arteish and the IRGC, is that they are seen as heavily ideological, not just from an Iranian national point of view, you know, national security point of view, but also from uh, the perspective of we will defend this revolution and this regime. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it has competition. So uh, now, the, and then the third thing is that it has its hand in every little cookie jar that makes up the uh, Iranian political economy. Uh, so their veterans are now, you know, members of cabinet, and they have been for many years, successive cabinet, they're brought in. Their veterans are uh, in, uh, you know, uh, the uh, economic sectors, particularly oil. Uh, their veterans are now even considering running for president. In fact, it was a weird thing that happened in order to make Raisi win this election, they even knocked out the Guardian Council that vets public uh, can- uh, candidates for public office. They knocked out a, a former general of the IRGC who actually ran the largest construction conglomerate in the, com- in the country called uh, Khatmalambia. And so you see the IRGC also wanting to have executive power, uh, of course, through retirees. Uh, it, it's kind of like, you know, uh, in that respect, it's like Sisi hung up his uniform in Egypt to become president. So he couldn't be both. If you're Pakistani, you could be both because Musharraf <laughs> was both. And many generals were like that. Uh, so, but you get my point. So the IRGC is sort of kind of like peppered all over the system. And uh, it's, it, it, that makes its power base. Uh, but it has certain constraints. There, the first I already mentioned that there is another military force that's parallel, is far larger in size. Uh, and we recently published a piece at the, at the New Lines Institute, uh, a terrain analysis showing how the IRGC is now, fl- uh, sorry, the, the Artesh Navy, it's flexing its muscles in terms of developing blue water naval capabilities. Uh, and that's an attempt to sort of say, hey, we've been in the shadows, the IRGC gets the limelight because of all those run-in with American warships in the Persian Gulf. But, uh, you know, we're the real naval force here. So there's competition for the IRGC on the military scale. Second is by itself, the IRGC has no, if you will, constitutional legitimacy. Uh, It serves at the pleasure of the clerics. They derive, the IRGC derives its power or its influence or its legitimacy from uh, clerics because they're the ones who created it. And they, you, can't, you can't just alone say we're defenders of the, the faith or the religion or the ideology or the republic. It goes through the clergy. Mm-hmm. So they're subordinate in technical terms. But they're unhappy with that. They're unhappy because they do all the heavy lifting right. for the regime. 
And since 2009, since that Green Movement uprising after a controversial election, they've also taken control of the Basij, which is another militia, a million strong. And they were formed, IRGC was formally given control of that. So their numbers have increased. Uh, so they can now compete with the uh, regular armed forces. But uh, they're still a hodgepodge of many things. And they can't themselves just jump to dominate the system. They have to do it through these indirect maneuvers and whatnot. So you have uh, a, a very complicated leviathan uh, between uh, clergy and the IRGC, as well as publicly elected officials, though, in my opinion, anymore, uh, they don't really matter. And the biggest evidence we got is the election of Raisi, which was just, if, if you, you know, it's like a typical setup where you made it easy for him to win because you knocked out all the competition and there was no other way. In other words, the outcome was jury rigged. There was, you, you did everything to where election day was just sort of like checking the box and saying, let's go through the motions because we already know this guy's going to be president. Yeah, although I guess to your point, I mean, it, it prevented the IRGC from ascending to the presidency. It also, I mean, not a lot of Iranians turned out to vote, but some people did vote and he, he did become the president-elect, I guess. But that, um, that makes me turn to the next question, which is, so what happens next? Are, we, are you waiting for Iranian Revolution 2.0? Do you expect the IRGC to continue indirectly um, you know, getting economic and security power and then it eventually becomes like the Egyptian military running Egypt, just the IRGC gets to run Iran? Is there some other scenario that you think is possible? Where, where do you think Iran goes from here based on, on, on the sort of sclerotic nature of this Leviathan that you're talking about? Great question. So um, the trend line for the clergy, as I mentioned earlier, is their power is diminishing. Um, we, whoever succeeds Khamenei, who, it doesn't matter who that person will be right now, uh, will not enjoy uh, the influence or the power or the authority that Khamenei enjoyed because Khamenei literally took over within eight years of the revolution because the founder of the Republic, uh, Khomeini, died. And this republic is Khamenei's republic. Mm. It is not Khomeini's republic. Uh, he didn't live long enough after the revolution to really finesse it. And all institutions, uh, all that complexity, civil, military, clergy, everything, this is the handiwork of Khamenei. Um, and therefore, Khamenei enjoys overwhelming, you know, power, influence, and authority. The next supreme leader uh, will have to fill in some, you know, some big shoes. Uh, not to say that Khamenei is a towering figure or ins inspiring or charismatic. None of that. He's an autocratic leader. But when you are at the helm for 30 years and you literally built everything and handpick and reshuffle and move people around uh it's essentially your baby and then somebody else comes in they're not going to be that respected much less you know uh seen as someone that they should say uh yes sir to and i think this is where the next supreme leader will become more of a puppet in the hands of the irgc and i'll tell you why because there's a technical issue here uh irgc controls uh, internal security, it controls communications, uh, it controls a lot of the critical levers of power. Um, 
in other words if the if it came to the you know if it came to that the IRGC could shut down the country that's how much control they have now they have to get the artesh on board they can't risk them saying well we're not on board with you and there's sort of that struggle between one military force and the other that becomes very ugly but in theory they have enough power to shut this country down which means that the already Khamenei depends on them to do the heavy lifting uh, but because he's been there and he's the the old man and uh, a lot of these people, generals and whatnot, owe their positions to him. So there's sort of this fealty that's still there, even if it's becoming residual. Uh, but the next supreme leader will not enjoy that. So the clergy uh, will not have that kind of influence that they did. So what does that mean? That means that IRGC will play a, a disproportionate role. IRGC has to figure out how they're going to share this, you know, this pie this growing political pie with the Artesh uh, and not, you know, alienate them. Uh, and then, of course, the legitimacy of the, uh, the, the regime is tied to the Constitution. So they can't do completely like extra constitutional stuff that, oh, you know, let's just hold it in abeyance or worse, you know, just chuck it uh, like militaries do when they make coups. So they, I don't think we're looking at a coup. I think we're looking at the IRGC spreading its tentacles even more uh, wider and deeper in the system once Khamenei is no more. Hmm. Um, what is to become of the political class? Well, it depends. You know, uh, if the regime faces pressure on the streets, the IRGC is, you know, can be seen, can be expected to be pragmatic enough to say, okay, you know what, let's release those reformist leaders so they can control the crowd and we can do business with them. So it's going to be a complicated uh, power sharing where IRGC is going to be a principal stringing along the Artesh, but also doing business with uh, people who are popular, you know, a class of politicians who are popular, because if they don't do that, then this regime risks falling on its face. There's no way the IRGC mounts a coup and the, and the regime survives mm -hmm. because it's so complicated. There are just so many arresters. This isn't Pakistan. This isn't Turkey of the of, of, you know, decades past. And this isn't Egypt or Sudan or Myanmar or Thailand. Yeah, that's depressing. Um, but let's, uh, one more question here before we turn to our next topic. Um, what does that mean for the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, US-Iran relations? I've been telling my clients that it seems to me like because of the dismal state that the Iranian economy is in, it really doesn't matter, you know, what faction is in the presidency or whoever is calling the shots. Uh, Iran needs to sell its oil on open markets and they're going to figure out a way to do that. And the United States doesn't want to deal with this anymore. The United States wants to move to the Indo-Pacific or wants to focus more on Latin America. It can't have so much of its focus on the Middle East. Plus Turkey is doing all sorts of things that make the United States nervous. So is that fair? Do you think we're looking at a reinvigoration of the Iran nuclear deal after Raisi changes just enough to take credit for it? Do you think that that's misplaced and that we're about to go through another round of intense Iran-U.S. tensions? Where where do you fall there? I think that you're you're right when you say that the United States wants to get over, at least this administration. The Biden administration just doesn't want this headache and they have no solution. 
uh, for Iran's ballistic missile threat. They have no solution for Iran's support for proxy militias and interference in the region and whatnot. Uh, but what they can fix is this whole nuclear thing. Uh, and they're hoping that this will become sort of the basis for maybe more, you know, understanding, if you will, you know, in not formal relations, but understanding where you understand where I'm coming from. And even though we're not, we don't have formal diplomatic relations, but we have like a modest vivendi. Mm -hmm. So that's what the Biden folks are thinking. Raisi got elected for one specific purpose. There are other purposes, but the but a key purpose is to make sure that when we have a return to the JCPOA in some shape or form, that it remains a very limited transactional move. In other words, this does not lead to greater detente uh, or contact with the West, mm -hmm. because this regime is fearful of contact. This regime cannot survive uh, if, you know, relations somehow, uh, you know, improve where Iranian expats living in the West, Britain, Europe, Canada, US, start going back home, and then they come back here, there's a, you know, transfusion of ideas and whatnot. That's just not what this regime wants. That's like a nightmare scenario. They want to stop it. Had Rouhani, uh, you know, in some ways, ironically, Trump nixing the deal actually worked for uh, uh, the, the the political establishment in Tehran. Yeah. Because let's say Trump didn't get elected in 2016 and Clinton would have picked up on the JCPOA and said, okay, you know, let's have you know, more relations, maybe we can, you know, send students there, bring students from here, you know, tactical level stuff that would have created a huge mess for this security state, mm -hmm. for this heavily securitized state. And yes, they lost out on the money and there was, it was very painful to go back into sanctions, but it survived. Now you're getting back to the deal. That's one good thing from the Iranian perspective. The second thing is it's happening under a president who has no intention of moving, doing anything just but the bare minimum. Hmm. Bare minimum is the sanctions that we agreed would go have to go. So reverse everything that Trump did. Uh, second of all, uh, no further discussions on the b ballistic missiles or anything else as a condition for getting back to the JCPOA. Access to the funds that are frozen, access to the financial uh, system of the world, and then, you know, allowing Iran to increase its oil exports. In, and, and that's all they want. And so that's a major problem for the United States that, quite frankly, I don't think the Biden administration fully grasps, much less has an under, uh, a, a strategy to deal with. Uh, there may be some, you know, hope that, uh, okay, you know, there's Turkey in the mix here and Turkey and Iran, uh, it, you know, are competitors. So maybe Turkey can do certain things in this region that we don't have to do a whole lot of heavy lifting that'll constrain the Iranians. Maybe that happens. Maybe the Biden administration is thinking along those lines. I haven't seen a whole lot of evidence for that. Um, and then, of course, uh, Israel is in the mix. And, uh, you know, that's also a part, a big part of the Iran containment 
uh, strategy of the U.S. And if we just make sure that the Arab states don't further weaken, then, you know, Iran is boxed in and we can live for a few years until we figure out what to do with this country. Mm -hmm. um, and then we have to wait and see what happens internally and domestically. We just don't know this is a moving, uh, you know, highly fast moving situation on the domestic political front. So that's where we are right now. The problem with this is this is all good. It's like a patchwork of bandages. But um, if Iran was able to strike at the Saudi oil facility while under Trump's sanctions, and it has made huge inroads into Yemen, in addition to the Iraq, Syria, Lebanon uh, arc, then imagine what it will do when it has more money. And, and, and the level of, uh, you know, uh, that assertiveness in the region. Mm -hmm. So that's the huge problem. What happens to the ballistic missile development? What happens to, you know, then there are sunset clauses in right. this JCPOA. What happens to them? Um, and so this isn't, this is sort of not even the bare minimum. So it's not like we're getting back to point zero. We're still in negative. Right. So that's where we are. All right, well, let's leave that uplifting story and go to one that's even more uplifting, which is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, I had a lot of questions um, from folks um, when, the, when the latest Gaza war broke out, what, a couple of weeks ago now, over a month ago now. Um, and I intentionally, I thought about actually calling you and doing a podcast on it when it was going on. Um, but I think it's just completely impossible to talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict when it's when it's broken out into an active stage and a kinetic stage like it was, in part because the folks that get attention are the ideological ones on both sides who are screaming about how you know Israel is the worst thing in the history of the universe and is evil, or the Israeli side saying, no, the Palestinians and Hamas, they're the worst things, they're the terrorists, you can't, you know, it's just hard to get a word in because that's what the algorithms reward. Um, so I wanted to bring you in here a little bit afterwards and do not necessarily a retrospective on uh, the recent conflict itself, but just help people take a step back and understand what the heck is going on between Israel and Gaza. Um, I don't want to spend more than 20 minutes on it, but let's give people the tools that they need to understand what the underlying geopolitical fundamentals of the conflict are, and so that the next time violence breaks out, and it will break out again, they have a little bit more knowledge so that they can think through these issues themselves rather than listening to whatever screed is being bandied about on Twitter and stuff like that. So at the 50,000 foot level, um, why, why the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Why, why does it exist? What is the problem there? It's a simple function of uh, the same land and it's very small and they're all, you know, both sides are huge uh, in terms of their numbers. And there's no way you can divide the land such that both sides can live, uh, you know, side by side. So there's that fundamental problem. Doesn't mean that you can't. I'm just saying that's a major problem to begin with. Right. Then, uh, you know, it's animosity. Animosity grows if it's led, led to fester. And we're about, you know, close to 80 years into this, you know. And, and ever since, you know, we're, we're, we're not there, not completely, but it's about 75 years or so uh, since the, the founding of Israel. Many wars, lots of people displaced on the Palestinian side, 
lots of, you know, uh, if you will, uh, terrorism from the days of PLO all the way to Hamas and that. Uh, lots of resistance, armed resistance. Uh, and so it's created a situation where this thing is like heavily frozen. There's not a whole lot of room to move. And it's, it's, it's almost ironic that, you know, I was telling some of my friends, um, I said, uh, and this was like when I first heard that there are, uh, you know, the Egyptians have gotten involved and there is some talk about a ceasefire uh, in just the last round of fighting. Mm -hmm. And I said, guys, in a few weeks, the world would have forgotten this. And all of you people screaming and foaming at your mouth on both sides are going to go back to their homes as if never nothing happened until the next time. Right. So, so that's where we are. That's why you can't get a word in. This is so emotional. And social media has sort of really amplified a whole lot of other voices that didn't make it to the public square pre-social media. And so the conversation is even more convoluted. So there is no way to sort of pull back and say, okay, how do we move forward? And then there's the, in addition to the shared geography, there is the Palestinian situation. Right, that because the there's, there's Hamas and the West Bank. Help us understand who these players are. Yeah, so there, so the Palestinian uh, territories that are supposed to become the, the future Palestinian state, they're not contiguous. So they're on both sides of the state of Israel, east and west. And so they're not just geographically disjointed. They have two rival movements controlling those territories and at, to the exclusion of the other. Right. So you have an intra-Palestinian conflict and, you know, it's not just Hamas and Fatah. It's, it's much more than that. But let's just keep it at that level for now. And, and so you, you, there is no way the Palestinians don't, haven't come together. There's no social contract between the Palestinians as a people as to what needs to be done. Do you fight? Do you make peace? Uh, and so on and so forth. On top of that, uh, you know, Gaza is kind of like choked off in the sense of uh, it's controlled by Egypt and Israel, uh, and access and everything. And so it's kind of like out of that equation. It's kind of like this proto-state run by Hamas that's and it's not really a state but it's not really you know uh, anything less than that it's kind of like they're on its own unrecognized territory uh, it's, it's sort of like a principality of those old days and an exclave of sorts uh, but the West Bank where the party that is recognized internationally uh, that part of, of Palestinian territory is increasingly being taken over by uh, Jewish settlements. And it's really taken away land. And the Palestinian Authority, that's a subnational entity, it's kind of like a morality, if you will, uh, it's losing control over land progressively. So that's where you are. You don't have like, this isn't like a, a civil war. Uh, in which there are two sides and you can bring them to the table, like, you know, the Good Friday Accords in Ireland, mm. Northern Ireland, where there were two sides, they came together, there was a resolution, and somehow there is an arrangement, and you go from there. 
other conflicts have seen, you know, uh, you know, agreements. You know, it's, does, it's not North Sudan and South Sudan. You know, if you want to make a comparison, that where there is like the southern part of the Sudan is with one regime and the north is with another. Uh, it's not that. It's really convoluted, complicated. Uh, the Palestinians aren't on the same page as to what they want because of the two rival movements having two different views of what uh, needs to happen uh, to their polity, to their future polity and their relationship with Israel. And then, of course, Israel has a problem that right now it faces rockets from Gaza. And their fear, the Israeli fear, is that what if you get rockets from the West Bank? Also, so now I have a two-front war, and Israel is a very narrow piece of territory. It's going to be hard to defend, um, and therefore there is no in interest in negotiating. It's managing it day by day, and sometimes the you know the the the, the forest grows, and then you have to do you know mow it down until the next time. That's what we're seeing. Yeah. Let's let's take a little bit of a step back because you you alluded to um, it being sort of a frozen conflict, and I guess it is in a sense, um, but it has changed a lot over the last hundred years, and it's sort of a glacial thing. But if we just run through the history really fast, if we think of pre World War One, Palestine is a province of the Ottoman Empire. There's no Palestinians, there's no Israelis, there's just subjects of the Ottoman Empire, and there's Jews and Muslims and all kinds of other religions that get screwed over and not talked about in the context of all this conflict that has happened, right? Um, then the Ottomans lose World War I, and we get the mandate period. And the great European powers divide up the Middle East, and the British take over administration of Palestine, um, and basically have made promises to everyone that they're going to do whatever they want. And the promises are mutually exclusive. They tell the Jews, we're going to give you a Jewish state. They tell the Arabs, hey, we're going to give you the state that you want. Um, and and you know the other and side they make, they make the sykes pico with the french right exactly so they're promising everything to everyone just so that they can win the war with the ottomans and do whatever they want they don't actually care about any of the stuff that affects these people um, fast forward a little bit to 48 which is when israel declares its independence and it's it's funny to think about it because the situation as it is today with the palestinians is almost reversed because Israel is the one that doesn't have a lot of territory. The UN has decided it's going to recognize this nascent Jewish state. But Israel really doesn't have that much territory. The, the Palestinians or the Arabs have most of the good territory. And the day that Israel declares independence, it basically starts a war. And a lot of these Arab powers join in and try and defeat Israel. They fail. They lose the war and Israel takes a lot of territory. And over the course of the next you know, four to five decades, and in the context of the Cold War, which is how the U.S. gets drawn in, Israel conquers more and more territory from the Arabs in the context of formal wars and a war that anyone would recognize and conquering territory. The problem, of course, is that as Israel wins those wars and defeats Arab powers, and sometimes it's the Arab powers attacking Israel, sometimes Israel does a preemptive strike. You know, th there's really no moral high ground here, I think. But Israel starts conquering Arab majority land and Palestinian majority land. And since the 70s, the Israeli conversation has been, what do we do? Do we give them citizenship and dilute the Jewish state because we're going to have not a majority of, of Jews in the state? Do we annex it outright? What is the world going to think of us if we do that? Uh, and sort of everything in between. And that's where it's really been stuck since the 1970s and the 1980s. And you fast forward to now, you know, the Israeli government is chipping away, as you said, at the Palestinian territories. Um, I would not be surprised if Israel started annexing 
you know, large swaths of the West Bank here in a couple of years. Naftali Bennett, who is the new Israeli prime minister, um, has campaigned on that. He was the first one to bring annexation sort of back into the conversation. He's going to make Netanyahu look like a like a peacenik if he actually gets his way with things. Um, and that's the context in which all of this fighting is happening. So just to say that, you know, it is frozen right now and the Palestinian situation does seem particularly hopeless. But 75 years ago, the Jewish slash Israeli situation seemed completely hopeless. I guess the difference, though, there is is the intra-Palestinian conflict that you talked about. Um, in 48, the Jews who became Israelis, um, they were unified and they came over their differences very, very quickly and were able to bound to get to to come together and defend what became the state of Israel in these multi-front wars. And to your point, the Palestinians don't seem to be able to agree on anything. Um, if all the factions could lay aside their differences and actually work towards using their political power in a significant way to gain concessions from Israel, probably they would have some kind of state already. I don't know. But anyway, I, I thought I'd lay out that history just to say, do you think there's any chance that we see a similar reversal in the next 50 years? Or would you extrapolate from recent history and just say, look, um, the, Israel is going to continue to chip away at the Palestinian territory that it likes. The Palestinians are going to remain divided and they'll have their little small areas of land and it's going to be miserable for them. Open air prisons, basically. And everybody's going to talk about them and use them as a political football in the region. But no one's actually going to change anything. And this is just the the status quo going forward. Is, is there any chance for change or is it really that sort of bleak thing where the Palestinian state is never really going to happen and Israel is just going to do whatever it feels like it needs to do, justified or not, to satisfy the demands of national security? Yeah, look, um, you know, that it's. It, I, I appreciate you going through all that history because it does put context um, to how it became frozen and my whole argument that it's frozen. Well, you know, there's freezing and then there's freezing. Uh, you, there's always a little bit, even, you know, with global warming, you know, the, the polar caps are, are melting, but are they gonna turn into something, you know, substantially different? No. So I'll use that metaphor to explain that I think that there is no solution to Gaza right now. It's just, you know, it's, there is an understanding, maybe, you know, at some point the Qataris are involved already and then the Turks come in, if the Israelis and the Turks can work out an arrangement where there's life becomes a little better there, there's some you know, construction development work. The Egyptians? The, Egypt Did the Egyptians annex it? They controlled Gaza for a while. I'm sure they, they don't want the problem. They don't want the problem because they, uh, Hamas is Muslim Brotherhood and the Egyptian state is you know, the, the boogeyman is the Muslim Brotherhood for them. And not just a boogeyman, it's just, it's an actual threat for them. Mm -hmm. So they're not going to do that. They just want to sort of make sure that it's not, it, it's kept in check. So, so let's leave Gaza aside. So mm -hmm. there may be a Palestinian state that emerges, but for that, the following has to happen. Number one is we need to see what happens after Abbas. Mm -hmm. Mahmoud Abbas, Abu Mazen is not going to be president uh, for a long, uh, for much longer. And, and just just uh, tell the listeners, just tell the listeners who Mahmoud Abbas is. Mahmoud Abbas is the the leader of Fatah, the successor of Yasser Arafat, and the leader of the PLO uh, that made the peace treaty with Israel in 1988. And he is the president of the Palestinian National Authority to the extent that there is a Palestinian <laughs> National Authority. He uh, reigns over a very corrupt, sclerotic system that. Uh, doesn't deliver much to the Palestinian people in the West Bank. 
So somehow the Palestinian leadership issue has to be resolved. And we'll see who comes up. I don't expect it to be anything smooth. It's going to be a very rough ride uh, in terms of the post-Abbas period. Um, the, the, the seamless way in which Abbas took over from Yasser Arafat is not going to repeat itself. So there's going to be a power struggle. So something has to come out of that. Once that, if the power struggle, depending on how long that goes and how quickly the, the Palestinian authority can sort of revive itself, the ruling party Fatah can revive itself in the West Bank, uh, then that's sort of step one. Step two, or maybe you know, step 1.5 that runs in parallel, is what happens with this new government in Israel. Mm. This new government in Israel also has an Islamist Arab party as yeah. part of the coalition. That was going to be my next question. Tell, tell us more. Yeah. And, and so, yes, he said, I'm going to annex, but I think that was more about um, how do you get Netanyahu out of the equation? What was the best way to do that? So you say, hey, you think Netanyahu is the biggest defender of Israel? Look what I can do. So I think that's more of that. Mm -hmm. I think there's going to be some pragmatic, you know, and, and then for the first time, the Israelis, because the one difference this time was that for the first time, this is significant, the Israelis saw protests from people who are Palestinian citizens of Israel, mm -hmm. the Israeli Arabs. And that's not good. And they're clashing with the far right of the Israel. And, and that was sort of like nothing that had happened before because of a war with Gaza. So you don't want rockets raining in, you don't want West Bank destabilizing, and then at the same time, you have Israeli Arabs who are, uh, who are citizens, full citizens, uh, revolting. So you don't want that. So I think that if there's going to be movement, it's going to be here where this government, this coalition government, if it can remain intact, because I haven't written off Netanyahu yet. He's not the type who's just going to say, okay, I've done my, you know, I'm now bigger than Ben-Gurion, and now that's all I wanted, and I'm going to retire. No, he's probably going to find a way to come back. And if I'm not wrong, the, the, the balance of power isn't that stark. So it's kind of like it could flip. So he could, he could, he could come back given the right opportunity. But let's assume that he doesn't. So they, this coalition government will somehow have to deal with the new leadership of the Palestinians after Abbas. And again, that's not happening anytime soon either because Abbas is still there. He's still alive. He will not leave office until he dies. So that's sort of a way where maybe a Palestinian state that's in the West Bank with some nominal sort of relationship with, the, with Gaza uh, or like saying, okay, this is the, the beginning of the Palestinian state. Somehow we will integrate, absorb Gaza into this at a later date. Mm -hmm. So that is something. So the Palestinian, so the West Bank, where Fatah rules, it has to manage itself. It has to sort its intra-Fatah, intra-PLO, intra-PNA relationship. Then it has to work with the new coalition government. And you know, the uh, the Palestinian capital in, in, in the West Bank, Ramallah, has to deal with Gaza and Hamas and the factions there. If this doesn't sound, you know, if this sounds complex, we still haven't talked about how Iran is influencing this, mm -hmm. the Turks are influencing this, the Qataris are, and other players, and, and, and Egypt. So that's why I say that movement will be very, very little, uh, but this is the way I see it 
unfreezing, if you will, because I use the term frozen conflict. Mm -hmm. um, when people look to you for opinions or advice on how they should think about what's happening between Israelis and Palestinians, how do you respond? I, I've been in that situation a couple times over the course of the past few weeks where you know, people start to glaze over over the history and the conflict and the, the ideological things that people are saying, and, and they just want to know, well, like, who's right, who's wrong? I know that you know in both of our disciplines that's not how we think about things but and and my thing is basically look anybody who's telling you there is, there is a right or a wrong in this conflict is selling you a bill of goods there is no right or wrong there is no moral high ground that's also i'm not saying there's any um um what's the word i'm, I'm not trying to say that all wrongs are equal by the way too what hamas does is probably worse than some of the very very bad things that the israeli army does sometimes like we can't have false equivalencies is the, the phrase I was going for here. So really, you know, the people that you should be sad for are the Israeli people and the Palestinian people and the Arabs who, who their lives suck because these political issues are completely intractable. Can you give any more guidance than that? Or is that kind of where you land as well? No, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I'm pretty much there. I would just only add that, look, um, emotions, anger, sympathy, support, in whatever shape or form, unless it reaches a critical mass, you're not going to change the reality on the ground. Um, and I, my response in all these kind of situations where people bring in the concept of justice to geopolitics, mm. my view is that the best you can do is first fully understand what's really going on. If you have caricatures of what is going on, then it's more likely you're going to make the situation worse than improving it. You can't move the needle in the other direction if you're assuming, you know, that there are people who are, you know, saints and uh, devils. So you, you, you can't use that model. So you have to first fully understand. And if you understand what's really going on, then maybe you can begin to say, hey, so what is possible here? What can we do? I can't give the Palestinians their state right now because nobody has that power uh, to do that. It requires a whole lot of powers to come together. And those kind of things happen rarely in history. Mm -hmm. uh, so what is it that we can do incrementally? So uh, can we make the lives of the Palestinians a little better in Gaza? Can we make the lives of the Palestinians in the West Bank a little better? Can we somehow, uh, you know, assure Israelis that they're not they shouldn't be constantly worried about existential mm. issues mm -hmm. uh, if we can do that if, and that's a whole lot to work on then maybe you know that's enough for the rest of our lives so our natural lives right uh, i'm sorry that's not very optimistic but that's where i am no i think that's a good point um, with the last 10 minutes come on um let's i'm dying to hear what you're what you're going to say about this next topic um, for listeners who didn't watch the Axios or HBO interview between um, Imran Khan, who's the prime minister of Pakistan, and um, Jonathan Swan, I believe, was the journalist. Uh, we'll put a link into the podcast episode. It's worth watching. Um, Kamran, I immediately thought of you, not just because you're Pakistani, but because um, this is an issue that I've been thinking about for a long time. Um, but to make a long story short, or cliff notes for the context of the interview, basically the journalist asked Imran Khan, um, well, look, you, you make a big deal out of Islamophobia in the West and in Europe and the United States, but you are completely silent when it comes to what is happening 
to the ethnic Uyghur Muslims um, in Xinjiang in Western China? Why is that? And Khan's answer was basically, uh, you know, the Chinese are very good friends with us. We tell them our concerns behind closed doors. And also we don't think what everybody else in the world says is happening in Xinjiang is happening in Xinjiang. Um, it was a remarkable interview. It was remarkably candid from Khan in a way that, that made me feel very strange. So I just, I guess it's a two-part question. The, the first is just how did you react um, to seeing Imran Khan say that and to how Pakistan, and it's not just Pakistan, Turkey is the same way, relatively silent on what's happening to the Uyghurs. Um, but how did you react to, to Khan in, in particular and Pakistan in particular being silent on this issue? And then second, um, and we might have even touched on this briefly in other podcasts before, but how does it work when it comes to the Muslim world's geopolitics and thinking through this issue? I know a lot of countries have important relations with China that they don't want to um, disrupt. But at the same time, what China is doing um, to its Uyghurs or what it's alleged to be doing, I can't say it for sure because I haven't been on the ground, but there's an awful lot of evidence out there, um, is just is maybe the most reprehensible thing I can think of that's happening in the world today. So I throw that at you and tell me what you think. Well, look, I wasn't surprised uh, because maybe because I'm so close to this, maybe because I've it wasn't Khan and his interview with Axios that was the first time I heard this. Mm -hmm. This is sort of the line of the Pakistanis. I mean, do you expect them to actually go and publicly reprimand or question what the Chinese are doing in Xinjiang against the Uyghurs? No, hell no. This is their main ally, especially at a time when the United States relations with the United States have you know soured and they're not improving anytime soon. So they need China. China invested $62 billion in infrastructure projects in Pakistan, which is starving for you know natural gas supplies and power generation capabilities and other transportation corridors and whatnot, the basic building blocks of any economy. Uh, and they're not getting any you know funding from you know the traditional source, which is the United States. Uh, and so there's no way that the Pakistanis were going. He was, this is exactly what he, he had to, I think what he tried to do, and it wasn't, he's not really good at this, to be very frank. Um, he thinks he is, and he, he makes, he messes things up uh, when he tries to explain it. So look, uh, I'll give you an example. So I was interviewed by uh, the largest Pakistani television network, but a few weeks ago, it was like a 35 minute one-on-one -on -one with, with this primetime anchor. It was in Urdu language, and they wanted to know about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Mm. The first question I get from the anchor is, so America is all big and it's a superpower. Why can't it be a superpower when it comes to the issue of the Israelis? Why do they become weak and cannot do anything to uh, you know, say to the Israelis or rein them in? Their allies are close people. They could at least do tell them to, hey, knock it off or you know whatever. And obviously, you know, there, this question itself comes from sort of like a conspiratorial sort of mindset that's very popular there. And so I, I responded and I said, it's just like you guys can't tell the Chinese publicly that, hey, stop, you know, oppressing the Uyghurs. I said, just like you talk behind the scenes, you, I'm assuming you do, maybe you don't, no ally is ever going to publicly shame another ally, you know? So the, if you can't do it with the Chinese, why are you expecting the Americans to do this? And you're, you 
you think that it's okay to just that this is a matter not dealt in the media but you expect this matter to be dealt in the media by the united states so guess what happens because it was pre-recorded that thing gets clipped oh no <laughs> so it I'm never shocked. made it to the, to the to the, <laughs> to the to the you know to the final actual released episode so i just wanted to explain that the Pakistanis are have no leverage with the Chinese when it comes to this issue. The Pakistanis do not want to get involved in this because there's just a lot of money riding on this. Mm-hmm. And so when put in a difficult situation, you know, I'm sure that, you know, if it wasn't Han, if it was somebody else was prime minister or, or maybe some of his other officials, they may have sort of explained this in a far better way. Han sort of tries to sort of explain things and comes up with these these arguments that that make it even worse he sounds worse he's trying to defend his position but he comes across even worse so recently he he it was about a year ago actually he called osama bin laden a martyr in parliament so i mean he's a guy who's very westernized he has nothing to do with osama bin laden but he's earned the moniker of taliban khan because of these things because you come I mean, is he pandering to the right, which is his constituency and voter base? Is he afraid of the extremists? And is he afraid that people will get angry, whatnot? Maybe, yes. But to what extent is it anti-Americanism? To what extent is this some form of hyper-nationalism? To what extent is this some sort of a transnational Muslim identity kind of thing? Who knows? It's difficult to tell what goes on in a person's brain, and so, so that was that's that that is how I saw that, and I wasn't really surprised. This is he. This is this is Imran Khan for you. Yeah, but zooming out a little bit, I mean, why the? I, I don't understand also because part of the attack it wasn't just the Xinjiang thing that was remarkable, but but the attack on Islamophobia um, in Europe and the United States, and there is some of that, and it's really destructive. Um, but at the same time, I mean, if Pakistan wanted. It could do certain things to, I mean, Pakistan used to be a U.S. ally. <laughs> like part of the reason Pakistan exists was because it was a U.S. ally in the context of the Cold War. If Pakistan wanted investment and trade deals and all sorts of other things, it wouldn't have to do that much, I think, to attract the European Union and the United States and some of these powers. And yes, I, I understand that Western ideas and Western modernity is threatening on some level, especially to a country that thinks of itself as a Muslim country, not just a Pakistani country, but you're telling me that the the money that comes from China is is any better? That the Chinese approach to religion, which is rigidly, I mean, I'd say secular, even atheist, maybe. I mean, I, I don't understand why Pakistan is so willing to open up its doors to China when it could probably get money from the West if it just changed its tune a little bit and probably money that would come with less strings attached. Maybe it has to do with the fact that the Chinese don't care who's in power and they'll let the regime that's in Pakistan run itself accordingly. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. It, it just seems weird to for Pakistan to put all of its eggs in China's basket when I do think that it could open up a little bit more if it wanted to. I think that sort of this is another, you know, decades long. We got here. You're right. Pakistan was a very early on signed on to post uh, sorry cold war treaties like cento and cito and was a frontline state in the 50s uh, at the height of the cold war 
but I think that that was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that there's been definitely there's been a, the Pakistanis are, have a lot of uh, to be blamed for what happened with the assistance and whatnot and how they managed it. But I think also that over time, uh, interests diverge. So when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, it was a no-brainer. You, the Americans hate the Soviets. We don't want to be invaded by them. Let's go. And at the time, there wasn't something called the Islamist threat, mm-hmm. uh, with the exception of Iran, maybe. And that was just coming around. It actually happened in the same year. So you got Islamist insurgents mobilized by the Pakistanis and the Saudis and the Americans, and everybody was on the same page. Uh, and then the United States, all the United States wanted, uh, and I think it wasn't managed well. I mean, and it also has to do with the fact that the Pakistani state and polity has been unstable for decades. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we go through these periods of long military rule, then, you know, controlled, you know, civilianization back to military rule. And we're now in that, you know, uh, we have, I, I, I doubt that we'll see another military rule anytime soon, but now we are at a point where the political system is sort of run by the military from behind the scenes, or at least managed. So that's an unstable element that does not allow the Pakistanis to develop a viable political economy, which increases external dependency. Uh, But going back to the American relationship is when the United States, the Soviets said, we're leaving. There was a Geneva Accord in 1988, and the Soviets said, we're out of here. And the Americans said, great, that's all we needed. We won't, we're done with this place. Uh, The Pakistanis had to still deal with it because they can't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. They're there. They're stuck with Afghanistan. It's geography. So th- that created resentment in Pakistan. And then in 1990, Pakistan was also at the with that whole idea of where Iran is today. Pakistan was in 1990. Mm. There was something called the Pressler Amendment uh, that the United States government passed, which basically placed sanctions on Pakistan for pursuing nuclear weapons. So. It, be, it was, oh, well, we're already upset that you just kind of left in the middle of a war and we're having to clean up after you. This is the Pakistani perspective. Mm-hmm. And now you're putting sanctions on us after what we did for 10 years. Um, and so, you know, that sort of, that was the 90s. And then the Taliban came along and the Pakistanis had to switch gears. They weren't originally Taliban supporters. They became Taliban supporters. When the Taliban demonstrated that they're the big, the, the, the most powerful militia in the country. So the Pakistanis switched sides. Uh, then the Pakistanis were sloppy uh, as hell uh, in allowing AQ and foreign fighters and all these other non-Afghans to go through Pakistani ports of entry into Afghanistan to found Al-Qaeda. And then in 19... Uh, this was ha- while this was happening, the Pakistanis conduct nuclear tests because India conducted nuclear tests. Mm -hmm. So more sanctions. Then there is the Kargil war with India in 1999, a year later. And then the Pakistanis have to go back to the Americans to kind of mediate with the Indians to kind of like cool this off. And uh, it was the days of the Clinton administration and Pakistan had seen a new military leader come to power, Musharraf, and he was a pariah. Until 9-11 happened. 9-11 happened. And once again, you now there is a schizophrenic kind of relationship, which is that 
hey, the Taliban are still our people, but America wants them toppled. So how are we going to deal with this? We need to be with the U.S. So we'll just kind of like play both sides, you know, okay, tell the Taliban, hey, hold off. Uh, there was no good way to manage that. Um, and the Pakistanis tried to play both sides. It led to increasing mistrust at a time when the Americans invested $20 billion in the United States, in Pakistan, uh, for which there's, we don't know what happened to that money, really, right. <laughs> uh, how it was spent. Uh, so clearly, it didn't go to the development of Pakistan. So by the end of the Musharraf era and post-Musharraf, Pakistan and uh, by 2011, when bin Laden is found in Pakistan, it was the worst year of U.S.-Pakistani relations. Yeah. Uh, there was, you know, an American CIA operative killing two ISI people uh, in Lahore. There was that uh, uh, crisis. There was the bin Laden finding in, uh, that created further mistrust. It was just sort of build up. And then the, finally, towards the end of that year, U.S. gunship helicopters killed 24 Pakistani soldiers in an airstrike inside Pakistan that kind of was the last straw on the camel's back and the Pakistanis then closed the, the, uh, the ground lines of communication, the NATO supply route for many months. And ever since the Pakistanis and the Americans have been trying to crawl back to some form of relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, and now the U S is leaving Afghanistan. So again, there's, well, we need you guys to manage this place once we're gone. Uh, we need bases. Uh, we can't give you bases. Just don't talk about it publicly. You know, let's just do this privately. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. So that really love-hate relationship between the United States and Pakistan that started in the 50s continues. Yeah. So, so this is why if you're Pakistani, you never know from the, your perspective, you don't know when the U.S. is going to be with you and when they're not going to be with you. Uh, China, you know, they hate India and we don't like them either. And they give a lot of free money and they invest a lot of, you know, their energy into the country. So it's an all weather friend. That's what the Pakistanis call China. And that's where they are. So this is in, in, sorry for the long winded, you know, no, no. discussion, but this is this is the, the answer to, you know, why the Pakistanis did not establish or were not able to establish a strategic relationship. Uh, and it was always a security relationship, a transactional one with Washington. Yeah. All right. Well, Kamran, I don't want to take you too long. Uh, I had other questions to ask you too, but we didn't get to them. We'll just save them for next time. Thanks so much for coming on and helping us answer these questions. It's always good to see you, my friend. Likewise. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Perch Pod. If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, if you have feedback on this episode or on any episode, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in and I love hearing from listeners. So please don't be shy. Uh, you can find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at perchperspectives because we love a good pun. Uh, we're also on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice-a-week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free. All you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't want to do that, you can read the post for free 
on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.